Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a medical doctor and historian compares today's medical education with that from the Victorian era. Things were relatively primitive in America in the 19th century, even uh, compared to England, which uh, wasn't exactly the height of science. And he tells how Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and Florence Nightingale blazed trails in medicine and nursing. They were lifelong sparring partners uh, who cooperated with each other, but also were not hesitant to take each other down. And a public health researcher tells how social media revealed concerns during the pandemic among patients with rheumatological diseases. Members of this population, of this community on social media, they started to talk about how they changed their health behavior and in a critical way. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we'll be taking a look at how far medicine has come since the days of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and nursing pioneer Florence Nightingale in the 1800s. Dr. Mike McGee is a medical doctor and historian who is a graduate of Syracuse's Lemoyne College and Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. He will contrast medical education and practice in the Victorian era to that of today, and he'll also explore the complex relationship between Blackwell, America's first female physician, and Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Dr. McGee is also the author of the book Code Blue, Inside the Medical Industrial Complex. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. McGee. Well, it's a pleasure to join you, Amber. Uh, it's good to be back home. I spent eight years at Lemoyne College and at Upstate Medical School, and uh, I always have been appreciative of having had a chance to spend that time in Upstate New York. Of course, you know that this year, Upstate is celebrating the 200th birthday of Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to graduate medical school in America. She attended Geneva Medical College, a predecessor to Upstate Medical University. You graduated in 1973. As a historian, let's talk about the ways in which her education in the late 1840s would have differed from yours in the early 1970s, more than 130 years later. Well, my first introduction to Elizabeth Blackwell was actually on the first day of orientation in 1969. They took us up to the library and there was the impressive uh, oil painting of Elizabeth Blackwell. And next to it, there was a uh, three page uh, explanation of who she was and where she had come from. And the phrase that I always remember is uh, on one of those uh, pictures, it said, this diminutive, softly spoken doctor with the glass eye was not a figure to be dismissed lightly. And uh, it was only years later that I had an opportunity to uh, really look into and understand her history and her uh, relations with uh, Florence Nightingale and uh, all this proved to be true. She was complex, uh, self-assured, and uh, a impressive leader in her own right. Uh, but she always gave as good as she got in what was then a male-dominated profession. What was medical school like in the 1840s in terms of how many years was it and what kinds of classes made up medical education? Well, you know, as you know, uh, things were relatively primitive in America in the 19th century, even uh, compared to England, which uh, wasn't exactly the height of science. I mean, in England, 
Uh, if you were going into healthcare, you could be what was then called a physician, or you could be a surgeon butcher, or you could be an apothecary. Uh, but the reality was that there was no germ theory, that the approaches that they took to healing were very invasive and quite primitive. And uh, in America, it was even worse. Um, this was true frontier medicine, especially for the first half of the 19th century. Um, and when Elizabeth Blackwell uh, came to the floor, she was... Um, a oddity at the time. Um, women uh, were not uh, very involved in medicine at all. Um, and she understood that uh, there would be progress ahead and she wanted to be part of it. Uh, the, the actual healthcare back then um, was a mixture of home remedies. Uh, it was often done by the women of a household who were carrying on an oral tradition. Um, there weren't really very many cures, but there were kind of these long-term views of how to prevent yourself from deteriorating. But uh, it was only in the latter part of the 18th century that we began to see significant scientific breakthroughs. Now you used a term surgeon butcher were surgeons butchers? What is that? Well, some of them did do double duty, but basically what it reflected was the fact that uh, it was a kind of profession that was pretty brutal, pre-anesthetics. Uh, you know, you could get a knock on the head or you could uh, uh, get laudum uh, or, or alcohol and try to doze off. But the reality is that if you were going to have something removed, it was a painful process. And uh, obviously, the skill sets of these people were highly variable at the time. Wow. Well, in terms of the material that was taught, would any of it hold up today or would all of it be considered outdated? Were there things that they were taught back then that you would still be learning in class today? Yeah, there were. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, Blackwell's actual uh, coursework uh, in the Geneva Medical School, which was the predecessor of Syracuse's uh, medical school, she signed up for two 16-week courses. Each of them cost $62, which was a princely sum back then. Uh, you had to go through these two 16-week courses uh, within a two-year period. And you repeated the exact same lectures twice. Um, and those lectures included lectures in anatomy and physiology, surgery, pharmacology, clinical practice, uh, pathology and chemistry, obstetrics, and even medical jurisprudence. Um, you had to, in between those courses, uh, scrape together whatever clinical uh, exposure you could, but it wasn't uh, any required clinical experience in order to graduate. So it was mostly lectures during those 16-week segments? Uh, that's right. It was all lectures. It was a didactic course. There was no clinical exposure or clinical experience during the coursework. You were expected to go home in between uh, the two sessions and find clinical clinical experience locally, or if you had wealth, you could uh, travel and try to find it either uh, at one of the big cities in the United States, or you could often go overseas. Once you completed the uh, coursework, you never were licensed. There was no licensure at the time, but what you did get is a diploma and more importantly, letters of introduction. And so, for example, with Elizabeth Blackwell, uh, she was not exactly happy with uh, what she um, had been provided after she graduated. In fact, she wrote, they talked over my affairs, but gave me no important advice. To my great disappointment, no letters of introduction were prepared for me. Now, Later on, they did give her letters of introduction, and she actually traveled over to Paris uh, for clinical experience 
and she was focusing at that time on obstetrics, but wanted to become a surgeon. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Mike McGee. He's a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine and of Lemoyne College, and he's a historian who has researched one of Upstate's most famous graduates, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. So it sounds like uh, in the 1840s, students didn't really have a, a specialty. It was more of a general medical education, or, or did you see any of them specializing? Uh, very few of them were specializing uh, during the 19th century. Uh, they were uh, more focused on uh, competing directly uh, with healers of the day. As I said, many of these were the women of a family who were carrying down the oral tradition of healing within their own family settings, and they were focused on uh, long-term cures. And uh, what we saw was with the influx of doctors, the doctors became uh, much more uh, short-term focused and interventional. Uh, they were expected for the money that they were paid to deliver results. So they became uh, much more interventional and much uh, more short-term focused than uh, what the healers of the day had been. Now, in your Code Blue book, you criticize the American healthcare system for focusing on curing disease rather than working towards solving cultural or societal factors that determine a person's health. In Elizabeth Blackwell's day, do you think the focus was more on preventive care than it is today? Well, I think for, for certain there was a longer term focus in general at the time. And I do believe that as we developed uh, in the 19th century, that began to shift to let's see some results. Now, uh, some of the tactics that they were using to deliver results were anything but uh, scientific. Um, in fact, you know, they relied on things like uh, better get it out than have it inside you. So emetics and laxatives and diuretics and expectorants, uh, whether they use scalpels or leeches or blistering or bloodletting, they they were trying to release bad humors from the body. So, you know, all of this was based on, you know, a very limited understanding of science at the time. But uh, we did see rapid progress over the second half of that 19th century. And coincident with that, we saw the various different guilds of medicine arising with the American Medical Association and the American Osteopathic Association and the American uh, Homeopathic Association. Those three battled with each other for dominance and control. And by uh, the uh, turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, the AMA seize control and and they decided at that time uh, that they needed to uh, do a wholesale reboot of uh, medical education and uh, invested in a report the flexner report uh, with recommendations that many of the schools in fact most of the schools be closed down. Uh, Flexner recommended 124 of the 155 be closed because they were of such poor quality. Uh, by 1920, 70 of those had closed, and by 1935, another 20 had closed. So um, what happened was that the schools, which were very variable and, uh, and happened to be mostly for profit, uh, began to shut down wholesale, and we went from some 28,000 students a year in 1904 all the way down to half of that amount uh, by 1920. Um, with that, we began to see progress in medicine, the emergence of germ theory, the use of clinical training uh, as part of the John Hopkins model of medical education and movement from these two session, two year events uh, to four year medical schools as we know them today. 
So the length of the training was extended considerably and uh, there was more hands on learning. Are there other major changes in the educational requirements today versus back then? Yes, uh, you know, the American Medical Association you know, has had a checkered history and and of course, in code blue, I do lay out all the different ways that they uh, manage to keep their guild intact and avoid competition and the profiteering that resulted from that. But at the same time, they are also the ones who, in the early 1900s who established the Committee on Medical Education. Uh, they established standards for the curriculum for medical schools and licensure approaches for uh, doctors, that series of examinations at the end of medical school. They also uh, brought into play the residency program and the various different specialties, but those really only uh, took off uh, during World War II and following World War II. If you were a specialist in the Army, you got a higher rank and were paid more and had a better living conditions over in Europe and elsewhere as part of the Army. And so people like my father, who was a uh, generalist physician in the U.S. Army during World War II, came out of that war wanting to be a specialist. And in fact, uh, the various uh, different benefits that were set up uh, for all soldiers coming back from the war, the GI Bill and so forth, uh, were allowed to be used by these generalist physicians like my father uh, to become the surgeon that he became. And in the medical and surgical specialties, then we saw an explosion of specialty medicine at the very same time that we saw uh, the uh, exponential rise of pharmaceuticals and other interventional type of care. So uh, coincident with the development of specialty care, we had specialty medicine. Those two uh, joined hands and uh, as a result, uh, we embraced a, a highly interventional, almost military approach to medicine. Uh, our uh, leaders at the time said, look, if we could just defeat disease the way we just defeated the Nazis, health would be left in the wake. And so we had a fundamental misunderstanding of what health was. They didn't see it as a holistic approach that involved social determinants like good nutrition and a clean environment and a steady job. Instead, they saw it as a battle against disease and simply wiping out disease would mean we'll all be happy and healthy. And of course, today we realize nothing could be farther than the truth. I mean, we've had four wars on cancer and we still have cancer. And uh, in addition to that, we have a healthcare system that is twice as expensive and half as effective as all of the comparator nations around the world. So we, we went astray uh, right after World War II. We never asked the most basic question, how are we going to keep America and all Americans healthy? Uh, and by not asking that question, we ended up with the healthcare system that we have today. We have to take a short break, but we'll be back with more from Dr. Mike McGee shortly. Upstate's Health Link on Air is back. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with a medical doctor and historian, Dr. Mike McGee. Now, you've drawn comparisons between Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and her contemporary, Florence Nightingale, who's considered the founder of modern nursing. What can you tell us about these two women? Well, I, I would say that they have a great deal more in common than what separated them. Uh, that said, they were lifelong sparring partners uh, who cooperated with each other, but also uh, we're not hesitant to take each other down. First, let me just mention what they had in common. First of all, uh, they both had British identity. Uh, both of them had British citizenships, although Elizabeth Blackwell also was a U.S. citizen. Uh, they were both very politically astute. So they maneuvered over uh, long lifespans, almost 90 years for both of them, 
uh, and found success by managing to um, live in a world that was gender controlled by men. They did not directly oppose male power, rather they figured out how to advantage it. Uh, they were both nonconformists and uh, strong uh, anti-slavery individuals. They had no interest in the Victorian women's sphere. Both of them were born almost at the same time as Queen Victoria, who then launched her long and successful Victorian era, but they had no interest in that. Uh, they wanted to function uh, in the world of men and not be held back by somebody else's vision of what women should be doing at the time. Uh, both had a heavy religious uh, kind of mission. They were focused on morality. They were focused on personal responsibility, committed spiritualists, uh, but also committed sanitarians. Uh, you could arguably say that these two were the ones that were the champions uh, for uh, cleaning up the hospitals and focusing on uh, personal sanitary behavior as a way of controlling disease even before we had a formal germ theory. Uh, both managed to pursue war service for advancement, although Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War was a great deal more successful at it than was Elizabeth Blackwell, who tried to become involved uh, with the Union Army for the Civil War. Uh, both of them served as hospital managers, but Florence Nightingale, uh, you could easily say, is not only uh, the parent of the nursing profession, but also the parent of hospital management. She was a brilliant statistician. Uh, she measured everything. Uh, when she died, she left behind 9,000 personal letters in her archives. Uh, she was a detail-oriented person. Uh, both of them, by the way, were more interested in leading their professions than they were in actually practicing. Uh, Florence Nightingale didn't practice much nursing, nor did she necessarily run hospitals, but she was largely responsible for establishing uh, the rules of the game for hospitals. Elizabeth Blackwell also was more interested in leading women physicians and their medical education than she was being a physician. Her sister, uh, in fact, uh, uh, did spend her entire life practicing medicine, but Elizabeth Blackwell was uh, more dogged in making certain that women who did have the opportunity to be educated in medicine got the exact same education as men got at the time. And finally, both of them were scarred by disease. I mean, um, as you know, Elizabeth Blackwell lost one eye shortly after she arrived in Paris. Uh, after her graduation, she got a gonorrheal infection in one eye during a uh, birth. And uh, she ultimately, within months, lost that eye and her hopes to become a surgeon. Uh, Florence Nightingale probably uh, suffered uh, uh, the results of uh, infectious disease that she got uh, during the Crimean War. But in addition, looking back on it, she probably also had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from that experience and spent a good deal of her time bedridden, but still... Uh, very effective as a statistician and a uh, publisher of, of various criteria. So that's all of the things that they had in common. But in addition, they were sparring partners. Uh, and it could get quite nasty sometimes. So, for example, Elizabeth Blackwell wrote a letter to her sister in 1860 commenting on uh, Nightingale's uh, publishing of her famous nursing book. And what she wrote was, her little nursing book is welcome to me because I expected nothing higher. And uh, then in, in return, uh, you know, Nightingale could uh, give as, as, good, as good as she got. Uh, she wrote in 1890 uh, to Blackwell, I remember my impression of your character, that you and I were on different roads, although to the same object. You to educate a few highly cultivated ones, 
I to diffuse as much knowledge as possible. So, you know, they were um, sometimes sparring partners, but often uh, ambitious moral crusaders who worked together, uh, not only in medicine, by the way, but also over in England uh, in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, they fought uh, for the rights of prisoners and for women, cleaned up the hospitals and helped uh, a, a great number of people as they were pursuing their own uh, clinical missions. Now, both of them lived to about 90, which life expectancy back then was about half that. So how did they each live so long? Well, you know, it's it's an interesting um, question. I mean, if you look at their lives, their lives uh, began almost within months of each other, and they ended up dying uh, within months of each other as well. Uh, they were, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, focused, number one, on a mission. They wanted more than anything else uh, to succeed, and they identified their missions early. Now, uh, neither of them ever left their clinical bases completely, but the reality was that uh, they were uh, trying to accomplish more than simply being individual clinicians. So Nightingale was totally focused on a statistical and evidence-based approach to improving hospital systems in the UK. And Blackwell was tremendously focused on uh, creating a medical education system for women that was second to none. Um, she was focused on that, not just because she thought women doctors for women patients was a good idea, but she really believed that women doctors would change the world. Uh, hers was a, uh, a social mission, a social campaign. Uh, so she was after the religious conversion of America's frontier culture uh, in line with her own religious views of what was right and what was wrong. And Nightingale as well. I mean, she, her religious awakening and embracing of nursing was at age 16. She came from a high, high level aristocratic family where women were expected and her sister did actually comply uh, with spending a life of luxury and philanthropy. She rejected all of that. And instead she chose what was considered at the time a very lowly professing nursing. In fact, most of the nurses at the time functioned within homes, rich homes throughout uh, England. And the vast majority of them were under the age of 18. So here you've got uh, this a woman whose family friends literally were part of both houses of parliament who had access to the royal family. And yet she chose to head off uh, to Crimea with uh, some 30 other nurses to a war zone and then uh, stayed on it. Um, and at the time that they died, which was within months of each other, they were both nearly 90. So I think it was a combination of passion, focus, and religious zeal uh, that kept them alive for roughly twice as long as the average life expectancy. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Mike McGee. He's a medical historian and a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine and of Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Historians don't have crystal balls, but the past can inform the future. I wanted to ask you what predictions you have about medical care and medical education in America over the next 100 or 150 years. Do you expect will have a cure for cancer, for instance? Well, um, my, my feeling is this, that uh, if we look at the trend lines, as I said before, you know, we have had four wars on cancer and we're still chasing that disease. 
Um, and I think what I've learned from that is, well, we may, in fact, have a scientific breakthrough for one or another of the types of cancer or even for the basic process, and that would be great. Uh, but that is not the same as health and wellness, and that does not particularly assist us in building a system that can respond to something like COVID-19. Um, these are two very different things. Um, what we have now is a very well-developed and very profitable medical scientific research enterprise, which I believe can stand on its own two feet and should stand on its own two feet now and should not be considered a replacement for a true healthcare system. I believe that um, what we may see in the future, because it's what we need, is the emergence of a medical science planners and health uh, public health planners that are steeped in liberal arts. Now, why do I say that? Uh, because I think the greatest challenge in building a healthcare system that can manage things like uh, the pandemic or uh, the promotion of uh, healthy uh, infants and mothers or uh, the ability to um, uh, ha adapt behaviors that are not self-destructive. That kind of a healthcare system uh, requires planners. Uh, it requires people who make wise choices and are willing to take on priorities. And it applies to people who are uh, going to expend what are limited resources on the most important social determinants of health. And those individuals, I think, need to be wise and they need to have a broad education. Uh, they need to understand the social sciences. They need to understand economics. Uh, they need to understand basic public health and population health principles. So uh, since that is what I believe is missing and has gotten us into trouble, where literally we've lost in the last year or so uh, hundreds of thousands of lives that did not need to be lost, if that's what we need, then I'm hopeful that that's what we'll get. What is one thing you would like today's young doctors to know about Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell? I'd like them to know that um, when you choose medicine, it is a holy endeavor. Uh, the great Cardinal Bernadine in Chicago was addressing a group of AMA doctors uh, back in uh, 2000, uh, shortly before he died. And he said to them, you know, there are four words in the English language that have common English roots. They are heal, health, whole, and holy. And he said, I'm telling you this because to heal in a modern world, you have to provide health. And if you're going to provide health, you've got to keep the individual, the family, the community, and society whole. And if you can do all that, why, that's a holy thing. Uh, well, that's what I want uh, everybody who becomes a physician to uh, embrace. Heal, health, whole, and holy. And to have that uh, judge their performance throughout a long and healthy life. That's what happened with Florence Nightingale. That's what happened with Elizabeth Blackwell. You asked why did they live long lives? I think because they understood and embraced the four H's. Well, thank you so much for this interesting look back. My guest has been Dr. Mike McGee. He's a medical historian and author of the book Code Blue Inside the Medical Industrial Complex and a graduate of Upstate Medical University's College of Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what social media revealed during the pandemic.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. An active community of patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases stays connected through social media. Today, I'm talking with a researcher about what this meant during the pandemic. Dr. Katja Reuter is an assistant professor in the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate who has researched the intersection of digital trends in society and health outcomes. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reuter. Hello. Now, you had a paper about this published in the journal Rheumatology. Please tell us about what you learned on Twitter about this population of patients at the very beginning of the pandemic. So we looked at uh, uh, patients with a couple of different diseases. So, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus. These are some of the diseases that might be uh, familiar to your listeners. And um, what we found, um, uh, and for us was very striking, is that early on in the pandemic, in February and March 2020, um, this population, members of this population, of this community on social media, they started to talk about how they changed their health behavior. And in a critical way, so they would talk about how they canceled in-person medical and lab monitoring appointments, how they would ration their medication. And for these patients, this can be critical. It can affect how they experience their disease. It can throw them back into, into flares, for example. Were they reacting to the news of the pandemic? Were they, was it, were they panicking? Absolutely. I think in the in the data we could see that um, part of what they were reacting to was definitely the, the limited information that came out in terms of guidelines. I think at the time in February, there were almost no guidelines um, and they were simply responding to the news, to news articles. They discussed um, uh, TV um, sections, so um, they were definitely the, responding to the news. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you're not a medical doctor, you're a, a PhD, but skipping medical appointments in this population or rationing medicines could be dangerous for some of these people, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you take the example of the lupus patients, for example, um, there's a particular drug that um, was discussed in the news a lot, um, hydroxychloroquine, if you remember. And uh, this is a drug that is important to uh, patients with several autoimmune diseases, but um, especially also um, for people with lupus, it, it plays an important role in their treatment plans. And what it does, it, it reduces the risk of uh, lupus patients to experience flares. So flares, for those who don't know the, the disease, um, is a period where these patients experience worsening symptoms. So it's all of a sudden and they feel very ill. They might have fever, a swollen joints, it's very painful, they feel very tired. Um, so just to, to name a few um, um, symptoms that they experience and the medication helps them to, to avoid, to, re to reduce the risk of these flares. So it's very important for them. But at the time, um, this particular drug got a lot of attention also in the media and because all of a sudden there were clinical trials that tested hydroxychloroquine in the context of treating COVID-19, the COVID-19 disease, um, it was diverted to hospitals and clinical trials. So all of a sudden there was not enough for these patients. And so you could tell from the data that we looked at that they were very anxious. They didn't know what to do. Um, and I think we also saw, we can say, that there was to some extent a lack of communication early on in the pandemic with their healthcare providers. So they simply decided, I'm going to rationing. I'm going to ration my medication. And so you noticed these sort of conversations on Twitter. Um, how did you go about putting your study together from, from there? And you focused on Twitter conversations, but some of these took place in, on other platforms as well, right? So we focused on Twitter data in particular. Um, Twitter is a good platform because the data is publicly available. Um, and when we do this kind of work, um, we, we use publicly available um, patient reported data, right? This is patient reported health data. Sometimes it's referred to as real world evidence. And so we, we make a point to use publicly available data. And so what we did is we simply on a, on a regular basis between February and July, we mined Twitter. So this means that we extract um, Twitter posts um, um, with certain keywords from Twitter and we analyze these. And we focused on, on messages from, from people 
um, within this disease community that talked about COVID and um, particular RMD. So, for example, you have hashtags like room or rheumatoid arthritis or RA, and these hashtags are used widely within this community. It's a very steady community. They talk to each other, and this is how they relate their posts to, to this community. So the conversation between these people, some of it, I mean, could be beneficial, right? Um, how do you mean beneficial? Well, uh, could they help one another with good advice that, that makes sense versus uh, getting getting people worried about things that maybe are not necessarily 100% true? Absolutely. I think it's a, this is what we saw. It's a very supportive community. They, um, for example, when they talked about rationing their medication, um, they were very supportive of each other. Um, I remember there were a couple of posts that talked about offering to share their medication with them. And uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a true support system for them. So that was very apparent from the data. Do you think this is unique to a global crisis like the pandemic, or do you think there are other important things that we could learn about trends in other patient populations by paying attention to social media? Um, I think this is not something that is unique to the pandemic. So um, social media surveillance data, we call this type of data also surveillance data, has been actually used by surveillance researchers, public health researchers, um, um, to a large extent. So they have, for example, looked into different health topics like influenza, um, schizophrenia, um, in, into suicides. So this has been done for a couple of years now, even though the field is still evolving and we don't even have standards to do this kind of research. But it's, it's a very active field and very interesting. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from this data. The fact that um, there are different patient communities, for example, cancer survivors, um, people who have autism, uh, people with psoriasis, with different types of diseases across the spectrum, right? That they that they share these platforms and they share how they experience the disease, um, the side effects, for example, of medications, how they experience treatments is can be very valuable. It's just not a data type that is commonly and widely used in clinical research. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Katja Reuter. She's a research assistant professor in Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. And we talked about a study she did looking at tweets from people with a rheumatic or musculoskeletal disease early on during the pandemic. Now, you focused a lot of your research on health communications and gaining insights from patient-generated health data. Do you think social media is being used to its fullest potential? Um, I, I wouldn't say so. I think um, that uh, in, in the context of research and healthcare, um, we could use this data um, much more broadly uh, to really reach its full potential. I don't think we do that yet, but I think there are, or there have been great developments. As I mentioned earlier, I think the fact that public health um, researchers, also in the context of smoking, this type of data source has been very insightful, right, to learn about how, for example, adolescents are using ele electronic cigarettes, for example. So I think there is a lot of movement and this data has been very useful to learn from, from different communities and also not only patient communities. Um, but I think um, the fact that we don't have standards to do this kind of research, for example, um, that we don't have reporting guidelines, which are really important when you do research, that makes uh, this type of research a little bit um, challenging. So we, we need to work on, on these parts. And as I said, in clinical research, there's a lot of reluctance to even rely <laughs> rely on this type of data, right? I mean, it's it's something that can be very valuable. It's data that comes directly from those who experience the disease. But at the same time, it's not the traditional approach. The traditional approach is that you listen to the healthcare professionals. Um, and that's what I like about um, working with this type of data because it, it it brings a perspective, the patient voice into the conversation in a much in a in a different way, in a non-traditional way. And you mentioned some other patient groups that are active in social media, cancer survivors, and you know a lot of different diseases have sort of support groups that have a presence on Facebook or Twitter or or some of the others. Do do these groups, is there any concern that they're setting aside um, their privacy, basically, by being active on social media, talking about a disease and their symptoms and what they're experiencing? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think to some extent they actually do. They they have set aside privacy concerns, and we saw this um, even within other research projects um, where patients they discuss um, to a great detail. They discuss how they experience the disease, what medications they take. Uh, even spouses talk about their um, their loved ones um, who might have cancer. Um, this is uh, other types of research that I do. Um, and so uh, we remind them if, if this is part of a research study, we remind them that um, uh, this is actually a breach of their privacy, that they should take these um, comments down. But um, I think it's something that we commonly see and, and usually under normal circumstances, this information should be protected and private. But Within these communities, and sometimes they are private, uh, like uh, in a private Facebook group, um, but on Twitter they are public. So it's a, there's a different degree to to what kind of privacy risk it is on Twitter when you compare it to Facebook, for example. Have you seen other researchers um, tapping into these patient populations? To, um, for instance, maybe if they're looking for participants for a clinical trial, this would be sort of a a community that maybe, you know, would be full of a lot of people that might be potential volunteers. Have you seen other researchers making use of that? So what we certainly see is that researchers increasingly use social media to recruit for clinical studies and health research in general. Um, there's a clear trend. Um, and I think this trend is likely to grow because recruitment um, is, is one of the major challenges to successful clinical trials. So a large percentage of trials, they fail because they cannot recruit enough participants, which is very challenging and it poses risks to the investment, right? And it poses risks to the patients that have already invested in a certain clinical trial. Um, and um, what, um, what most studies do is they use either paid advertisements, um, very similar to any marketing firm, or they use organic messages. Although I should say that some platforms like Twitter and Pinterest, for example, they um, per don't permit, they don't, they don't allow these types of advertisements of clinical studies. Um, and then there are other platforms that um, allow it with, with uh, moderation built in. So for example, Facebook, you would have to get your approval for your post. Um, and this changes regularly. So um, tomorrow, what I just said might not be true anymore because they changed their terms and conditions but it is not possible on any platform in, in the same way, on every platform in the same way. But the surveillance data that we are talking about right now, this type of patient-reported outcome data, that's used less in recruitment, um, which means that uh, um, we don't have enough experience with how people react to being targeted just because of what they said. Some of my research actually um, has focused on using this type of data to identify, engage, and recruit cancer patients in clinical trials. And this, this paper is currently under review, but what we found is um, that we can actually identify and engage them, but it's very hard to recruit them into clinical trials. And it depends a lot on, on what you want from them, right? A survey study is very different from getting them to come to a site and join a clinical trial. Uh, and so I think this, this kind of research is still in its infancy. Well, this has been very interesting. Thank you to Dr. Kastor Reuter, a research assistant professor in Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Christopher Paolino is an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate Medical University, and he's researching a new test for Lyme disease. If someone finds and removes a tick from their body and they're concerned about Lyme disease, what do they need to look out for? I think the first thing I would do is try to identify how long it's been attached for. Um, most of the tick Born diseases that we worry about, including Lyme, really need to have a tick attached for at least 24 hours or longer. Um, if, if you know that the tick has been attached for more than that, I would reach out to your, your primary care physician and, uh, and discuss it with them. There is a, uh, a post-exposure prophylaxis that people can take that's been studied. Um, it's a 200 milligram dose of doxycycline one time. 
Um, there are other other individuals out there that that believe a longer course of antibiotics may be necessary, but the, the one-time dose of doxy is what's currently being recommended. Thank you, Dr. Christopher Paolino from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. One of the benefits of aging is the ability to review the past and grant ourselves and others absolution for mistakes and hurts. Benita Mason is a nurse with three poetry collections. Her poem, Double Crown, will strike a chord with many daughters who remember their moms combing their hair. Here is Double Crown. I would have thought it meant royalty, except that my mother, combing her granddaughter's hair with pride, explained how hard it was to style because she had a double crown. I smiled when I saw the tufts of hair that wouldn't lie down and recognized the two stubborn cowlicks I'd had at her age. I have one too, remember? You do, said my mother, looking up with a mix of surprise and regret. I didn't know. I should have known. And so I forgave her for all the pain of being pulled against the grain through those tangled years of childhood when it would have helped so much to know that although I was no fairy tale princess, I had a double crown. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.